Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about guidelines for voters with dementia. We literally uncover a politician who hid COVID funds in his underwear. We announce with regret the cancellation of the Bad Sex in Writing Awards. We wonder if stealing ancient artifacts can result in bad luck. We dip again into the fan mailbag, and we report on what the law says about dementia and voting. In the Old Dogs Conversation, we catch up with Lucy Abernathy, a devoted Californian, as much beloved now as a landlord as she was for years as a teacher of juvenile delinquents. Stay with us. Paul? Yo. What is on your mind? Uh, I must say you woke me up, Jim, but... uh... (laughs) You know, we have a a piece in today's episode, which is folks with dementia can vote. Right. They just pass a couple of simple tests. Right, yes. Which raises the question, look, we have restrictions on whether or not we can drive, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we get uh, older. Should there be some restrictions on mental capacity uh, for voting as people get older? Yeah, well, as our pod nugget says, there are a couple of guidelines about uh, what help can be given to people with dementia in the voting process. But I'm not sure that they're enough. I mean, uh, it's so easy to manipulate, even at that simple level, what a person with dementia is going to put on a ballot. Right. I, I think that more restrictions should be put on them. Yeah, but it's it's a hot potato, no question about yeah. it. Uh, because the thinking is that uh, we don't put those kind of restrictions on any other voter who does not have reduced mental capacity. They're able to vote for whoever they want. And I think that thinking went into folks with dementia. But it is a serious issue, I think, because there's such a large population that are having dementia problems. Yeah, well, and that number, according to this pod nugget, is around 8 million people. At what point do you say, okay, now you have to go under these restrictions? Yeah, yeah. Now, there was a big hoo-ha during this past election season about uh, people that were deceased voting. Um, Well, I certainly think there should be restrictions on them. Being alive should be at least one of the main main restrictions. Um, My problem is it's prone to manipulation Mm -hmm. uh, because these folks are going to need someone to help them complete a ballot. Uh, So how do you even begin to apply restrictions? And, you know, I wouldn't even know what restrictions should be in place, but maybe it's something that should be taken a look at. Yeah. Maybe we do need a voter card, but, of course, there we go. That goes back to poll taxes. That goes Mm -hmm. back to some of the violence that was done to minority voters, particularly black voters in the Mm -hmm. South, to keep them from voting. Right. Well, you know what, Paul? It just occurred to me. Hmm. You and I don't have the answer. No, but someday we may need to. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and that day is fast approaching. It seems to be. 
Don't you hate it when police arrest you and they ask if you have stuffed cash in your underwear because your pants are lumpy? Oh, yeah. This pod nugget is from the Sky News for October 16th, 2020. Senator Chico Rodriguez, a key ally of Brazil's president, was detained at home by anti-corruption police investigating missing COVID-19 funds. The police initially found the equivalent of about $8,000 in his safe. Rodriguez then asked to go to the bathroom. As he was leaving the room, police noticed a large rectangular bulge in his pants. Mm. On investigation, they retrieved another $3,000 in local currency from his underwear. The police then asked repeatedly if he had stashed more money in his underwear. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, really. Natural question. (laughs) Finally, he angrily shoved his hands into his pants and pulled out another $3,500. Apparently, he had forgotten the second savings account in his tidy whities Rodriguez said in a statement, My home was invaded for having done my job as a lawmaker, getting resources for the state to combat COVID-19. I believe in justice, and I will prove that I have nothing to do with any illicit act. Well, you have to admire his panache for pretending that everyone carries their cash in their underwear. Oh, don't you? Uh, No. Perhaps next time he will transfer the cash to a bank card and lose those unsightly bulges in his clothing. For the first time in a long time, the award for the worst sex writing in the English language has been cancelled. This item is from the New York Times for December 8th, 2020. Staff members of the London-based Literary Review have presented this award for over 30 years. The editors who run the contest announced the cancellation by saying that the year 2020 has been unpleasant enough without their contribution. According to the magazine, the award's purpose is to honor, or perhaps dishonor, the year's most outstandingly awful scene of sexual description, and to draw attention to the poorly written, redundant, or downright cringeworthy past Passages of sexual description in modern fiction. The list of nominees is dominated by men, but a few women have claimed the prize. Rachel Johnson, the sister of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, won the prize in 2008 when she compared a character's fingers in foreplay to a moth caught inside a lampshade. <laughs> the field of winners isn't just unknown authors who have earned their obscurity. Nominees have included Salman Rushdie, Norman Mailer, and Stephen King. In fact, the year that Ms. Johnson won, John Updike was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. The award appears to be a humorous spoof of more lofty literary prizes. Review editors gather at a club called, get this, The Old In-N-Out in (laughs) central London to read competing excerpts and name a winner. The prize is a plaster foot, which is received in good humor by most of the winners. Miss Johnson called the award... An absolute honor. The winner from 2006, Ian Hollingshead, exclaimed, Oh, I hope to win it every year. (laughs) Ah, hope springs eternal. If you have stolen any relics while on vacation, this may be a good time to return them, especially if you've had bad luck since you snatched them. This pod nugget is from the Brief News segment in Time magazine for December 14th, 2020. An anonymous woman mailed a piece of marble back to Rome's National Roman Museum in November. She apologized for being an American a-hole for taking it from a historical site in the city. 
In March, a man returned a 2,000-year-old catapult to the Israel Antiquities Authority. He had taken it from a display in Jerusalem 15 years earlier. A note mentioned that he wanted to clear his conscience before the end of the world. And finally, in October, a Canadian tourist returned five artifacts to the archaeological park of Pompeii. She said she had stolen them 15 years earlier. She's had bad luck ever since and didn't want to pass the curse on to her family. Hmm. So is there anything you want to return, Jim? I'm thinking maybe the whole year 2020. Ah. From time to time, we've got an email from our listeners. It's really easy from our website, olddogspodcast.com. Just click on the Contact Us option and give us a piece of your mind. Well, here's a piece of fan mail signed Grandpa B. This is amazing. I never knew that anyone else out there was like me. I'm a 75-year-old guy that needs this kind of talk. Like old guys talked on the courthouse steps while they whittled on a piece of wood when I was a kid. I never paid them any attention when I was young, but now I feel like listening. Thanks for giving me this sense of value. My wife and kids sure don't. It's interesting that you figured out our secret sauce. You know, we are whittling on wood Mm -hmm. as we record each episode. Unfortunately, our conference table has been whittled down to a nightstand, but the shavings help with the acoustics. And we're sorry that your wife and kids are ignoring you. Here's a suggestion. Try whittling on your dining room table. That should make them take notice. Yeah, let us know how that works out, okay? In addition to all the other concerns about voting, should someone with dementia be allowed to vote? This pod nugget is from the New York Times for October 14th, 2020. Edward Koslowski is 99 years old. He's a former mechanical engineer who spent most of his work life at NASA. He's now resident in an independent living facility in Maryland, and he has dementia. According to his daughter, some days he's right on the mark, sometimes he's not. He can grow disoriented and is prone to wandering. As a result, he requires around-the-clock caregivers. Yet, he watches the PBS NewsHour and CNN religiously and watch the presidential debates. His daughter helped him fill out his mail-in ballot in the recent presidential election. She is a former federal prosecutor and elder justice consultant who understands the rules. Her father knew which candidates he wanted to vote for, And that's all it takes. Most of the 8 million American adults with dementia are older adults. That's a lot of voters. In most cases, there are only two guidelines to keep in mind. So listen up. Number one, ask whether they want to vote. If the answer is no, that stops the process. But anyone who expresses an interest should be assisted within the limits of the law. Number two, you may read the voter the ballot choices, but no additional information or interpretation is allowed. Ask them for their choices. If they answer, they vote. Voters don't have to complete the ballot. They can just vote for president. Write-ins are also permitted. If their choice is Mickey Mouse, it should be honored. Really? Really. Should illogical choices be recorded? Is there a danger of manipulation by caregivers? Should there be a more rigorous test of voter competence? What do you think? Go to our website and give us a piece of your mind. Lucy Abernathy grew up in the wealthy Detroit suburb of Birmingham. 
Her worldview changed dramatically when she became involved first in teaching inner-city kids, then in helping young California students get back on the right path. After retirement, Lucy is still going strong. Lucy, let's start by having you describe what you refer to as growing up in Mayberry. (laughs) Tell us about that. Well, you know, in Blue Bloods, there's a wonderful scene at the end of every show, the family dinner table and everybody having conversation. is an iconic uh, picture that reflected uh, the values of the neighborhood, family, conversation, you know, um, everyone working together, going to the local parochial school and and walking down to Mills Drugstore for um, candy. Well, you kind of got a an awakening from Mayberry when you did your student teaching in Detroit, right? Absolutely, I did. What happened? I had a student teaching assignment in a very high-end suburb and um, I got into uh, fisticuffs, not literally, but figuratively, with my supervising teacher on the first day. Oh, my. And uh, I said to myself, this is not going to work. And um, I was transferred then to a huge all-black high school in the inner city of Detroit. A little bit different. A little bit different. And that was the 60s. You know, life was not that simple in the 60s. But it was a wonderful, it turned out to be a wonderful experience. And I um, learned to uh, cope with the realities of the inner city. And I think it was a much more valuable experience than it would have been in the suburbs. And probably two different kinds of music, too, I would guess. (laughs) So how did you end up in California? Well, I met a man who was from San Diego, and uh, he loved San Diego. He grew up in a military family, and he always, he traveled the world, but he wanted to come back to San Diego. And I am so glad he did, because in my opinion, it's heaven on earth. It's a beautiful city, no question about it. But how did you end up at a facility for juvenile delinquents? How long was your sentence? (laughs) My sentence was uh, 22 years there. It was an interesting story because um, back in the beginning of my assignment, uh, you know, we had kids who just were a little bit naughty. They were truants or they got caught with marijuana or something minor like that. But then as time went on, the profile of the student changed, and they began to ship in young men from the San Fernando Valley who happened to be gang leaders up there, and they wanted to break up the gang, and that's when the real adventure began. It sounds dangerous. Well, it could be dangerous. Um, I have to tell you one vignette. So I was used to these truants and these other minor infractions. And one day, about six years into my assignment there, boom, the classroom door blasted open. And in walks this very um, masculine, red-headed Mexican. And he walks in and he takes control of that classroom. And I... 
I had never experienced anything like it. He was a powerful personality. And I thought to myself, well, this is going to be the acid test of my mm -hmm. career. So the long and short of it is, um, you know, I observed, I was quiet. The rest of the kids in the classroom were shaking in their boots. They had never witnessed anything like that. His name was Orlando Imperial, and he was wow. Imperial. So after this little writing assignment, um, I said, uh, Mr. Imperial, may I have your paper, please? He gets up and he does the what we call the pimp walk. <laughs> else. And I said, Mr. Imperial, I don't want your body. I want your paper. And the whole class roared, <laughs> including Orlando. <laughs> and from that point on, we were buddies. Fantastic. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Just being spontaneous, you won him over. It could have gone differently. Oh, it certainly could have gone differently, but I wasn't going to give this one a chance because I had never met anyone with those stripes. He was a valedictorian in our little school no of uh, 200, mm -hmm. and he um, often came back after he graduated to, to see us and to report in, and uh, he... He turned out to be a tax-paying citizen because I heard from him about 15 years later. He called me and he said, Dr. A, I just want you to know I finished reading Call of the Wild to my children just like you read it to us. Wow. Huh. So, it must have felt terrific. A wonderful Ooh. conclusion of a long career. Yeah. And you chose a second career. Yes, Tell us about how you came to be a realtor. I'm telling you, I think it was born in me. Uh, I have a, a big Irish family back in Michigan. Many of those um, cousins of mine are realtors. And um, I just believed in California. And I believed in land and real estate. And I just began to pick up little properties that were on the inexpensive side of the ledger. And uh, those properties now are million-dollar properties. And I just did what I knew and uh, began to invest in what I, I showed and what was around me. Thank you, God, because now I can support my ex-husband who's in a care facility mm. and, and live well and um, collect the rents. As a landlord, what's the weirdest renters you ever had? Oh, my goodness sakes. Well, I like to consider myself a, a pretty good judge of character, having had a relationship with Orlando Imperial. <laughs> 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 and one of the things that I do as a landlord is that I make sure I walk them out to their vehicle and look in their car. Because the way they keep their car is often the way they're going to keep the house. Mm. And if the car is full of candy wrappers and dogs that haven't been combed or bathed in months, uh, you can be sure that that's a preview of coming attractions. Mm. And you're still doing this now, Lucy, is that right? You're still an I active am. realtor. And yes, uh, what do you see in the future? Do you see continuing this? If if so, is there, let's say, a, an end point where you would uh, like not to be doing anything this active? 
Well, you know, Jim, I I say no one spends my money as well as I do. <laughs> and my tenants really like that. If they call me at 8 a.m. on Christmas morning and they have a hot water problem, that's my problem, and I'm going to solve it for them. I'm not an 18-year-old kid who will call them back after they go surfing. That's usually the people who wind up in um, property management, and they're dealing with the owner, so it's much more reactive for them. Mm-hmm. I, I have great renters. I, I make sure I stay in constant contact with them if they need me. So um, the uh, kinds of renters that you get in San Diego today are very high level. Well, you've had uh, an interesting life. Have you ever thought about a path not taken? Was there a direction <laughs> you could have gone that you said no to? I think that I would have loved to have gone into the theater in some respects. I had an aunt. Um, I don't know if you knew that, Jim. Yes. Uh, my aunt was Elaine Strick. Yes, I know her very well. Yes. And that was always very inspiring to me, but um, that's the path not taken. So mm. I'll just be a shepherd in the Christmas pageant. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that would have been a different direction, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would have been a different one. Well, yeah. but a great mentor if you had chosen oh, that. Oh, yes. She was a pip. A wonderful she actress. Well, Paul, so for it, your business, how have you had to change some of your practices because of COVID? Oh, you can't believe the protocols in place now before you see a house. I mean, you have to fully outfit yourself in PPE. You have to have legal documents signed by the party going into the property. It is a massive, massive task, but um, it, it practically has paralyzed the real estate industry as far as uh, sales are concerned. Hmm. Rentals are a little bit less taxing. So are you, are you hopeful about the year ahead of us? Um. Hopeful. I am. Uh, I feel we're going to have a very, very severe um, reaction to all this money we're printing up and handing out. I think it's going to be ten years until we come out of this COVID economic feedback. Mm. That, that's my opinion. Because mm-hmm. we've never encountered anything like this in our lifetimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Is there anything? Let's say that you think of in the future that is on the brighter side? Anything that you can see that you think is going to be, let's say, an improved life? I think that education is going to be an improved life. I I think that the creativity that's being demonstrated, trying to, you know, reach these kids at home who are getting bored silly out of their mind, I think parents are going to be a lot more empathetic to teachers and and i think that whole um how you access education for children is is in the state of flux and i think it's going to be extremely positive but the the presence of a a caring teacher with a sense of humor who has leadership ability we we hear what the kids say they miss their teachers they want to get back to school because of that because oftentimes that leadership is not available in the community or in their households. Well, you sure made your own contribution in that area. Oh, well, I was in the right place at the right time. Hmm. 
And you took advantage of it, that's for sure. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> I sure did. I I uh I don't know how I wound up in that school. I it was written in the stars, but it was a wonderful experience for me. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.